This podcast is brought to you by Universal Audio, a pioneer in audio recording for more than 50 years. UA faithfully crafts classic analog recording hardware like the LA-2A and 1176 and is committed to creating new digital recording tools with the sound and spirit of vintage analog technology. Check out their line of Apollo audio interfaces, UAD plugins, and more at uaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Born in the UK and now currently residing in Nashville, Jamie Liddell sings, beatboxes, records, produces, engineers, writes songs, writes code, and actually functions as a husband and father. He has collaborated with Beck, Feist, Gonzalez, Maki, and Simeon Mobile Disco, just to name a few. His songs have been used in Grey's Anatomy and Target commercials, and he has won global accolades for his work. I sat down with Jamie at his studio in Nashville to catch up. Enjoy. Whoa. I did the fallback. <laughs> I don't know if it can not do the fallback. So what's your history? What's the, the backstory? Starts in England, of course. And yeah. It, was your stuff kind of more electronic-y mm-hmm. in the, or sample-based in the in the uh, beginning, as I've kind of gathered? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can think of the history in a weird way. Yeah. Magazines were a massive part of my <laughs> my life, just yeah. dreaming as a sort of a teen. Yeah. I started to just get into guitars and, you know, know that I gravitated towards musician types. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that, isn't there? There's yeah. that thing that happens at school where you're just like, I don't like these sports. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. It's just a different thing, but right. it's the same um, end, <laughs> end result, possibly. It's, you know, different yeah. sports, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I liked hanging out with the musicians and wanted to make shit on in the lunch break and anyone yeah. who had a guitar that could play I was like really curious to want to be able to do what they were doing so I started for some reason I, I actually that's the one thing I don't quite remember so like why I started getting into looking at all these music magazines right like I don't really know what drew me towards the technological side of it mm-hmm. I think what it was actually I kind of do remember now we used to go to a shop called Turnkey in London yeah. Didn't used to be called Turnkey at the time. It was called something else. Yeah. Soho Sound. Or something oh, there like you that. go. <laughs> and it was like on Charing Cross Road, like Denmark Street, where all the music shops are. Right. And they had like all the the newest gear. And whenever I did go to London, which was pretty often when I was like right. able to, because growing up in Cambridge, like an hour away from oh, London Cambridge, by yeah. train, right? Yeah, it's not very far. So I wasn't in Cambridge itself. I was kind of nearby. Near so anyway, yeah. Going to London, basically. Going into these shops and just sort of it's sort of thinking like oh man loving music mm-hmm. thinking the same kind of things we were talking about joy division like how are these made like how are these sounds what do you <laughs> yeah and then hearing a few keyboards so i remember the d50 had just come out mm-hmm. Korg m1 yeah like the the akai s950 mm-hmm. and like all of that was fresh technology and the proteus and there was a few like of these bits of gear that were like playable in these shops you know right and like i just start to like get obsessed with going to these 
these stores and just kind of sitting on the machines and just kind of dreaming like I could own them. Right. And, and then, then eventually I got yeah. like a weird, I got a little bit of money from my grandma. Someone died and I got like 2,000 pounds. And like, I just remember I had like, was <laughs> really to... careful with that 2,000 yeah. pounds. I bought all the gear from Sweetwater actually. Because really? it was like almost a two to one dollar to a pound. It was oh, an yeah. amazing time. For right. Me. We're talking about, I was 16, so it'd be 19, no, but 19, like 88, 89. Mm -hmm. I bought my first studio equipment, which was an Akai S950, a Korg M1, 58. I got a Fostex track and a right. midi verb three. Oh yeah and like i you know i knew yeah. what i wanted yeah so I, and and thank god i got the the akai right you know what i mean because at first when i remember having it and i was just like what are you do what do you do with a sampler it seems ridiculous <laughs> now but i didn't have anything to really interface with the sampler you know right i just it's just very strange to imagine <laughs> not having sort of... any kind of understanding until i had right. like cassettes of like funk and stuff that I'd get at uh, like a fair, strawberry fair in Cambridge and mm -hmm. someone would sell like, like rare growth cassettes and I'd start sampling James Brown and yeah. And then word got out in the village that <laughs> I had a sampler and some kid, some guy that's a really weird story but it totally happened, like it was like I organise raves and events and would you want to like do some techno basically, Yeah. would you want to open up for the prodigy <laughs> so I opened up for the Prodigy when I was 16. Oh my God. Maybe 17. And uh, that was pretty much a life changing experience. Was you, were you terrified? In a way, no. Yeah. Until I was there. Do you know what I mean? All I had of my shitty equipment and I was running using my Fostex as a mixer. Yeah, yeah. And like totally, and it, right? it, it was terrible. Yeah. I mean it really sounded bad. I was sampling like the Muppet show, like Can the Frog, Can the Frog Dance and making kind of novelty hardcore records. A bit like the prodigy, because they sampled like education right. they did that Charlie says, but obviously right. there was this whole cocaine subplot over my head at the time. Right. Because I was also like pretty naive as a teenager, pre-internet, living in a village. I was gonna say, yeah, you're not in a major uh, no. metropolis. Yeah. And everyone I saw that night when I played with the Prodigy <laughs> was like on ecstasy, kids at school. And I was like, what is going on with everyone? Why are <laughs> they all so nuts right now? Why are they so lovey-dovey? <laughs> yeah, why are they all like feeling what I did just now? Cause I was feeling pretty hard beat down. Yeah. Because my mom was a really hard, person to please as was my dad yeah so sort of drew me into a weird perfectionist sort of mm -hmm. hell in a way not yeah. hell but you know drew me into the world of striving and never being satisfied right well pros and cons of that yeah, or yeah. whatever that's my my <laughs> totally. psychology in a nutshell but um so yeah i was like beating myself up like that was shit but then the prodigy came on and i kind of lost all of that because just the experience of seeing them, they had W30s at the time, the Roland sampler, they mm -hmm. had two of them. They were using a bit like turntables. So they'd put one, they'd play, load one sequence on a W30, then they'd be preparing the next one on the next one. Right, so they could just keep of, it. And they'd play the next one and load yeah. the next song. Oh my kind God. of a sick idea actually, right, kind of right. nice. But they just blew the roof off. It was incredible, it sounded yeah. so crazy. Yeah. And I was like, their equipment isn't that different from mine, but listen to the difference in the way it sounds. The production. That's what, that's yeah. what started my cogs turning like, mm. okay, 
there's so much to learn, <laughs> you know? And then I just kind of dabbled, really. Went through school, yeah. tried to make little songs, was like listening to Aphex Twin. Right. And a lot of the stuff that the kids were into, I got into hardcore. I guess when we say in England hardcore, right. <laughs> it's like rave. Right, right, yeah. Late nine, late yeah. 80s, early it's 90s. Not, it's not DC punk rock. No. <laughs> but it was really, it was, it was all about raving. Yeah, It was about yeah. going to raves, oh, yeah. getting wasted. And like, that was you know, a, that was the tribal identity. I don't even know if someone in the U.S. that never saw that could even understand what no, that it's was. In, it's in, it never yeah. happened in America. Not, not like that. It never there happened. Were, there were attempted raves or things. It's absolutely but, the different not, thing. Yeah. It was like a very English phenomenon, yeah. really. Very strange. Yeah. I think it's partly because of the manners. Yeah. You know, the English with their built-in manners. <laughs> but post-punk, it was right. a kind of like a, taking that energy. Right. Adding ecstasy to it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Then you oh, did yeah. have the Happy Mondays and like bands capitalizing on say, crossing over. I just read that. I just read Peter Amazing. Hook's book on the Hacienda, you know, and that's like, oh, yeah. that's like majorly where some of that nexus was coming from. Oh, and, and the Mondays and oh, the, and, and know, enjoyed it and, and all this other sort of music order. that was happening around it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of almost sort of like just the energy of that time was special. Oh, looking yeah. back. Even Primal Scream. Like, oh, yeah, that was amazing. Into, morphed into something different. Oh, and, man, Screamadelica yeah, was such yeah. a big album for everyone. Absolutely. So, you know, that was it. And The Orb. And oh, all yeah. All of those big stoner records. And they, that's kind of like what I was listening to. So that right. was my world. Yeah. So I basically immersed myself in that. But never, I guess, lost my... And I, I suppose... I got completely carried away with that <laughs> and then got involved making records. Were, were these things under your name or a, a project name or what, how were things presented at that My point? My first release, yeah, was basically a really strange, like um, pretty dubious bit of electronics <laughs> called Manfish. <laughs> uh, which wasn't the name I came up with. It was I. I had been making demos at college, so I just went through. Yeah. Went to college, studied philosophy, whatever. Right. Just made music in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. But a kid that I went to school with went and got a job at Strongroom Studios in London, mm -hmm. which is a pretty solid studio. Yeah, I've been there. A great place. Yeah. And, and actually, through going there and meeting up with this other guy, Mick Shiner, who subsequently worked a lot with the streets and mm -hmm. sent a lot of good shit. Mick's yeah. always been a big champion of like the unknown acts. Sure. So he was a good dude. And he kind of heard my cassette demo that I sent to my friend, just sort of, just, I wasn't trying to get anything from right. this. Right. I literally was like, hey man, I've been making music. Here's some little things. Yeah. And it got me in the door and this guy was like, why don't you just go into the studio? So he threw me into a room with an SSL and all the gear and i had only got an s950 and a little mackie at that point yeah so i was like i don't know what i'm doing in here <laughs> so, so i look back at that in my mind the other day i was like well no wonder my original demo kind of felt better because i had it on an s950 and i transferred it all over to the s3000 and it lost right. a lot of its joy interesting yeah so the now the s950 is like a beloved bit of boutique right 12-bit history and right. I, that's my just my thing yeah so um but yeah, that's sort of kind of how I first got my shit out. But through being at the Strong Room studio, I met these guys, um, Jason Leach, Phil Wells, who were just kind of like 
scallies in a way. That's yeah. not. I'm not <laughs> trying to use that in any kind of derogatory or like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just energetic dudes who just like really wanted to get shit going. They were yeah. like cheeky and just like really funny and compelling dudes who would hang around and who wanted to make techno and do parties that did a mm-hmm. thing called growth, which was like a crazy rave that they threw right. sometimes on right. a submarine, right. a party on a submarine, disused like office space. It was really creative right. like where it was and it was like, they wanted to make records. So I was like, oh, I can maybe go in with you guys and let's see what we come up with. Right. And that was really important for me. So I'd go out and like all of a sudden they introduced me to the music of Detroit, Chicago. Right. I hadn't heard any of that. Right, right. And like, so I was getting this education because they were like record collectors, DJs. And like at that time in the 90s, it was actually an amazing time for electronic music. Right. Like it was so much innovation. It was like a really crazy, beautiful time. Like, it was, the technology was and some of it was new yeah and some of it was older stuff being repurposed yeah and everyone was trying to sort out how to combine it was it a all. brilliant time yeah yeah because a piece of technology can come around and revolutionize music for right. a bit right like yeah i mean whether it was obviously back in the day the 8208303 the combination yeah. of those rolling boxes right 909 and it was so important and it just it allowed people to yeah, it was punk in that way, right? I mean, that oh, whole yeah. Chicago story of they wanted to make disco records. Yeah. <laughs> they had a DX100 and a yeah. 707. Yeah. <laughs> so they tried to make disco with that. Right. So it's just kind of like, and that evolved into a totally crazy sound. <laughs> so yeah. I, I got caught wind of that and just fell in love with that and thought, oh, I can, I know how to make this stuff. Right. You know what I mean? I want to start see if I can combine what I know about how to make shit from just spending so long just on my own working right. shit out, yeah. programming on Atari ST, learning my way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we started making records. We did like 10 EPs in a year. We did really getting busy. What and was the name on That's Subhead. Right. So that was my first start of something that I felt proud of. And through doing that, I was really into the music of Christian Vogel. Mm-hmm. Stories kind of come to an end too, but uh, it was, no, no, it was convoluted. Is, it's it's kind of like I, I'm through. I this met, is the story. Yeah, and I was, yeah. I was listening to all of the Chicago and Detroit yeah. shit. Christian is a guy who kind of was totally versed in all of that and yeah. like had his own unique way. He was using Octomed. Don't know if you remember that. That was like a tracker on the no. on the Amiga. Oh right! Do you remember yeah. the trackers? They like have yeah, a yeah. bit of a resurgence, almost right. a romantic resurgence. Back in the day, that was a serious <laughs> way to program. Right, right. My uncle was a was a yeah a software developer for the Amiga. He used to write, work with Rupert Murdoch's company, Mike Mirasoft. It was a very mm-hmm. early software company. Right. So I was really into Amigas. Right. Computers. I was into that. Like that was futuristic. That shit was like cutting edge, wasn't it? Oh, the idea that you could have things programmed on a computer and then change them. It's incredible. You know, the first time I saw MIDI really being done, I was like, oh, I can play shit drums on these pads and then tighten it all up. (laughs) Yeah. No, exactly. So all of these things were doable, right? Yeah. So all of these... That's exactly how I feel. I mean, it's yeah. been to my detriment to an extent now because I can't really play much because I spent my entire life programming. Right, right. So, um, well, it's yeah. also arranging, though. It is. And it sculpting is sculpting sounds. I That's mean, it's exactly not, it. It's not like it's not making records. <laughs> no, you're making yeah. some kind of digital score. Yeah. And that's the thing. I, I got wind of Christian through through these guys, 
and just loved his music and was always like really high, like listening to his shit going, man, this guy is on his own thing. Mm -hmm. I went to Brighton to find him. Yeah. <laughs> like an idiot. You're just like looking around. Yeah, just so like an idiot. But the first day I was there, <laughs> I bumped into his girlfriend. Who had a Trezor Records bag, and I was like, "Are you oh Chris's sister?" Just out the blue, <laughs> I asked that question. She's like, "No, I'm his girlfriend." And I was like, "Oh," <laughs> and I was like, "Well, hi, I make music as a subhead." And she was like, "Wow, Christian's a big fan. He just played your shit at the Love Parade, and it was like the biggest what? shit." And I was like, <laughs> "So." Yeah. Talk about crazy yeah. alignment and moments. It was sick. So I just kind of fell straight in with those guys. We got studio together, got along, and made two records of Super Collider, which mm -hmm. was a really weird proposition, really. Yeah. To kind combine. Of, yeah. I got back into singing, really, because right. I had a thing of singing, and I was a singer all through my early years before right. the computers and stuff arrived. Right. You know, before my voice broke, you know, I was a big sort of singer. I used to yeah. do a lot of choir shit, unaccompanied performances. I was really yeah. serious about singing. Yeah. I loved it. Got a lot of attention. So right. that was good. <laughs> so it kept me in the game. So, yeah, I got back into singing. And I just kind of figured, like, why not? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'd been in a couple of bands and just dabbled. Do you know what I mean? But anyway, mm. that was that time, yeah. wasn't it? So yeah. I, I, so I did all the stuff with Christian. That's in Brighton, right? So yeah. got in there and we had a few years. Then I moved to Berlin. Right. Met someone there and like <coughs> kind of wanted to get out of England. You know, it used to piss me off because we would always make this outsider electronic shit. Right. And at the time it was Big Beat and Fat Boy Slim. Mm -hmm. And it was real brain dead shit to me and Christian's ears. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just yeah. like bludgeoning, like, dung, 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 drop it. You know, just like, kind of the EDM, like, silliness yeah. in a way. Yeah. Kind of like, really just kind of, oh, you really need it spelled out for you that much. You know, right. You guys, yeah. You know, and so we were like the snobs. Right. We're like the music <laughs> snobs. But the funny thing Oops. was, in Brighton, there's a funny combination of the punks didn't really go for what we had because it was too right. pretentious. Right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they just would have rather listened to the Stooges and just got right. fucking wasted. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Which I understand. Right. Because, yeah. But, or like just straight up techno because it's kind of right. the same. Right. And like the, the good stuff that's yeah. really hardcore and it's pretty good rush so right. doing this weird thing in the middle where I was singing we were trying to write songs and it was kind of a stylized thing and do you think partly <sighs> you, you know, the singing was a good way to, to assist in the collaboration too it gave you a different sort of angle to work, wrap around his work I think I was definitely yeah 100% you know? like once I left to go to Berlin I was in a serious conundrum because I'd signed a deal with Warp Records mm -hmm. whilst I was in Brighton because we befriended this guy, Hardy Finn, and this other guy, Paul Fowler, who runs Spy Mania Records. And mm -hmm. Spy Mania put out Square Pushers' first records and stuff. So I was a big Square Pushers yeah. fan. And I used to hang yeah. out with Tom wow. and those guys in Brighton in those days, those early days. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to be on Warp as well. Right, right. I wanted to be on the label with Aphex Twin, Square Pushers. That was the Some... highest honor to be on Warp Records. That was some breaking stuff. That was I mean, the pinnacle that was yeah. of, of electronic yeah. music in the UK. Yeah. So when I got, so I got, I did a record for Spy Mania first. Mm -hmm. 
called Muddling Gear, which then got signed to Warp and yeah. licensed, uh, which got me in the door. And then I got my deal with Warp. And mm-hmm. uh, was basically, I got signed to Warp because of my voice. Right. Because I had a song on that album called like Daddy's Car or something. Yeah, Daddy's Car, where I'm just sort of doing an R&B song, basically. Right. But it's kind of like with electronic drums right <laughs> sort of a bit of like while i was doing with super collider we were doing kind of r&b mm-hmm. nowadays it would just like be fine no one would think about it no or, or, it's almost like yeah. the sound of now slightly yeah yeah but it was in 98 so <laughs> it's kind of weird yeah it's definitely vintage like 20 years old so that's yeah. super weird right so um yeah so when you moved to it Berlin, was very unpopular it was just sort of, yeah. but yeah, yeah, sorry. When we played, Christian was already big right. in Europe. Right. He was a very established DJ, really right. respected all through Europe. And obviously, going to Europe and playing a super collider, we were welcomed in Munich, Berlin. They got it. Mm. And I was like, this place is so much m- more advanced. Right. Like England are a bunch of fucking hooligans. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. In our culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's different. this is fucked. I, yeah. I need to be in Berlin. These yeah. guys are like, they get it. There's always been that intellectual yeah. edge to that city. They you just know? got it and yeah. they were embracing it. And I just felt like this is where I need to be. This yeah. is where I could flourish. Right. And it was the best move I could have made. Amazing. I mean, Berlin was unbelievable. Yeah. So, such a cool time to be there. 99 to 2008. Right. So that's where I did... My, that's when I just got back into, you know, I did another Super Collider album there mm-hmm. in the Funk House, which is now used often for the oh. music messes and uh, right. the synth things, the oh, Super is, Booth. Oh, is that the place where uh, Nils From has a studio now? Probably, yeah. Is the, is the old ra- yeah. Russian radio place? Yeah. Yeah, we just we have an article coming out with him. Yeah, that's where issue, my yeah. studio was. Wow, that sounds like a crazy building. 99 2000 yeah it was <laughs> it's a yeah, it's a stasi it's a, every it's like a long ass corridor yeah every door the same you know it's that it's a communist <laughs> aesthetic of like everything yeah. is the same yeah right you get it oh yeah so it was and the owner was really bizarre and it had a weird smell to it all the clocks were set to midnight and they wouldn't move <laughs> which is disconcerting you know what I mean? <laughs> to be to, to leave that studio at night. Yeah. And it's kind of like that part of town at that time, Kerpenick in Berlin was still, yeah. it felt like they were racist and it felt right. like that's where the bad Berliners were. And shit. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. Because when you'd go a bit more into town, it was all like la-di-da. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, there's no strife in, in this world. But out there, it felt a bit like it was more just kind of like the hardcore yeah. outside of town. It's right. probably softened a lot since then. I imagine. And I, I right. might well have been projecting that. I never actually <laughs> ran into any of that shit. But it just, there's certain parts of Germany where you just get more of that vibe. In England too. Yeah, right. Same here. Yeah. It's a bit yep. more like going out to a place where you feel like, oh, I better keep my head down and yeah. <laughs> not talk English. And shit. You don't have an accent. Yeah. I don't know. Know. I'll put on a drawl and try to... Paranoid. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> so, but that's it, man. I moved to Berlin and then I then I met my wife in New York mm-hmm. and we moved and I lived there right. for a couple of years. Made Compass with Beck and Chris Taylor. Right, right. 
I'd made records in in Berlin with Marky, Multiply, and Jim. Made mm -hmm. those in in Paris and then in, in Berlin. Yeah. And then. And what were yeah. you picking up along the way from others and and from studios and different places you worked? You I guess know? just the ret working with Marky was a big deal for me because yeah. it was hilarious, really. Well, from muddling gear to Multiply, it was like five years. Right. So what yeah. I did, a lot of things I learned, one of the big things yeah. I learned was I moved to Berlin with the the dwindling advance from my first Warped album, <laughs> yeah. which was not a lot of money right. at all. I'm not right. just sort of, you know, it really wasn't. It was barely enough to subsist. Right. So um, with that in my pocket, I, was, I arrived in Berlin thinking, okay, what the fuck? How am I going to... How am I going to really make a go at this? Right, right. And so I had to be, like you were saying, as a really perceptive point about working with Christian. Right. So what was my, what could I bring to the table? Mm -hmm. The vocals were clearly a thing. He was better at programming. He was he was more well-versed in all the synths. He, right. he taught me how to program synths. I mean, he taught me a lot of shit, but I had the vocals. So right. like going to Berlin, I had to just look in the mirror and go, okay, who the fuck am I? And what can I do out there? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like what can I add to this scene? And like, right. it was a time where I'd go out to see Peaches a lot. Mm -hmm. She's like a pal of mine from that era. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the Canadians I knew, Trilly Gonzalez, Marky, right. you know, Kevin Blechtum, who's like a really amazing right. artist and now lives here and great. She yeah. taught Cal Arts and really amazing. But um, just Tim Exile, a few of these guys were in the Berlin scene yeah. at that time. Um, how did your music change at that point? I just needed to work out how to do a live show. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I thought, fuck, I've got to just go out. I've got to make some money. Right. And I can't do it by making this record. Do you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Because... You don't get paid till later. Yeah. <laughs> so I need money now. Yeah. So I thought, okay... I've got to work out a way to play live. So I I, I started doing looping. Mm -hmm. Because I actually oh, really right. inspired by Matthew Herbert. Mm -hmm. He was the right. guy who taught me that it was possible. Because we had a night called, um, well, it was a night at the end, the club called The End yeah. in, in, in uh, <clears throat> London. And a lot of people come through. Chris Cunningham, the video director, mm -hmm. used to play there. Right. And uh, yeah, Matthew Herbert would come through. And his, mm -hmm. his whole style was he would do do something like he had kettles i remember he had like kettles that had the tops off and they were like just pushing out steam yeah that, that was his visual wow showing right. a bit of work and you know, <laughs> very wasteful i don't know if you're doing now but, um <laughs> yeah he just had little delay pedals boss delays right you know how those early boss pedals had like a loop function all it really was was a short delay right right it hold a bit like the prime the whole time thing right totally it was a hold yeah. it was a hold yeah, yeah so uh and you could overdub i think actually so, but yeah. anyway, he'd just do that on stage and I was just like really enamored by that process thinking I love the way this feels. Yeah. It wasn't the whole show, but it was part of it or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I sort of went off and sort of tried to make a version of that show or like my own interpretation of how that could work for my music. What kind of things are we using to loop with? Right, I had the uh, the Boss SP202. I had mm -hmm. the, the green... Line six delay, oh, the classic. Yeah, that's handy. <laughs> so I had those two things. Yeah. And I didn't have much else, really. Yeah, yeah, wow. And I'd get them <laughs> to bring me like a, a synth or, yeah. you know, so I'd just get the venue to supply something. Right. And I'd have a CDJ as well. So I'd make little tracks. Right. And I had these microphones, I still got them called the Magic Mic. 
yeah which uh, had like a pitch shifter like built in oh wow <laughs> and like i used to Fine. live with a guy who was my visual artist and we'd go and do these sort of live shows together right and like you know it was this Projecting. crazy yeah he'd project and do yeah. live shit on top of me doing live stuff oh, cool so we developed this kind of thing yeah um but then yeah I needed to evolve it. So I spent six months basically in the lab on my own in Berlin, like building a looper in Max MSP. No way. So I taught myself Max MSP because <laughs> I could see the limits of my looping right. capabilities with this stuff was really crude, but I knew I loved doing it. Right, right. So I had a Mutron octave divider and I put my voice through like a bunch of pedals mm -hmm. and that was cool, but it just hit a limit quite quick. Right. And I thought what I need is a way to record different loops haven't come up on a mixer be able to affect them differently right and i came up with a quite a nice looper five channels wow using the five fingers on the black keys recording with the left and, and right. muting with the right oh wow two octave keyboard oh, okay i could do the the mod wheel was the speed of the of the looper and you could go Tempo. reverse as well oh wow and uh yeah and i just made this thing and really made it rock solid and it mm -hmm. was a beautiful thing that's what bought this house Really? That looper bought this house. Did you? I opened for James Brown with that looper. Yeah. York, Beck. Like really? my whole career was based <laughs> around, my money career right. came from inventing that looper and building was it. Was it something that was being, it's being sold? No. It, was it no, no. just, just during you using it? And it was just me. Yeah. I mean, I used to do shows with that looper in 99 onwards. Right. So I guess, no, 2000 probably had it yeah so yeah that technology was not really available at that time right not in that way i love how you built it with max you know that's amazing it was shit <laughs> but it worked i had an yeah, rme yeah. sound card right which was great super yeah. low latency and it was awesome yeah. and uh so like yeah that, that once i made that system work it was just a dream and i remember yeah. just doing a show at sonar i think it was like 2003 or something and there was a big moment. I love few people were there and the yeah. show was really rammed and I just rocked the house it with felt, this thing. It felt right. Yeah, and yeah. Matthew Herbert was there with Arto Lindsay and they came wow. on the stage at the end and we jammed what? together. <laughs> and, and at that point, like Matthew was totally blown away by the show and I remember him yeah. just kind of going, holy shit, what have you been doing? <laughs> yeah, I had this great acknowledgement from him, which was a beautiful circle. Right. Over like where he's like, he, I could tell that he was impressed <laughs> and I needed someone in my group to sort of not acknowledge it. It was a really right. nice moment. I worked awesome. super hard for that show yeah, and it really worked. Bookers really wanted me. I was booked like crazy. Right. I used to play, I had three booking agents. I had all around, you know, just for Europe. <laughs> Jesus. One for Belgium and, and like, yeah. the, you know, the UK. And then I had another one for, you know, one for... Italy and Spain and and you were that, still in Berlin at that time yeah so yeah. it was beautiful to be in Berlin because like, yeah. oh, I got a gig over for you over here yeah just yeah. like zip around yeah. used, to, used to have carry all this money with me like in a little bag <laughs> on the train falling Jesus asleep <laughs> after to, the show just like terrible really thinking about <laughs> oh, it now geez. Yeah. it wasn't a lot of money but it was still after 10 shows, it could be right. quite a lot. You can add up. And that's going to be your rent. <laughs> yeah. You know? and then, but it was brilliant, man. Yeah. You know, just, but I played so much. I used yeah. to just play the entire time. 
Wow. So that was it. That uh, once I got that, that's why I didn't make a record because I was touring right. like a beast after that. After the steam of that got going, and then but then eventually Mocky thankfully sort of got me back for recording. Yeah. We got to be friends because I worked with another friend of his and he yeah. heard it, me singing and he was like, oh man, what's this guy up to? Did it help to have someone to help you focus how to put oh, an album yeah. together after doing the I looping? I couldn't yeah, do shit. I wondered about that. Still to this day, I'm my own worst enemy in the studio. <laughs> yeah. I can produce other people, I reckon. Right, right. I mean, I just have produced an Alan Stone record. I've I listened produced to the, a few. I listened to the song that's out. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's great. Oh, you know? Yeah. I love the little backing vocals at the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just stuff that's still, I only listened to it once this morning and I was like, Oh, that's ah, cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. No, nice, man. Yeah, no, it's, it's great working with him. He's a yeah. really fun dude. Good voice. Great voice. Yeah. Super talented. It's really cool. That's the thing. So it's kind of like, I've been really lucky, but I've just, uh, but I've always been the guy under the radar slightly. Because mm-hmm. I never <laughs> kind of connected. Multiply was a big album. Mm-hmm. It's 2005. Yeah. When I handed it into Warp Records, and yeah. I'm really not going to talk shit about anyone no because I've I've done a fair <laughs> bit of that today with another thing I did earlier and I'm having major regrets about being that Uh-oh. way oh yeah. yeah really terrible I don't know why I don't know if you ever get into this zone but I just start you know, to talk it, shit and, you can start having a bitch fest yeah <laughs> like and with, was, other, with other engineers we'll do it yeah you know, we'll it was like, unprovoked and it was the people right. I don't really know and I was yeah. like after leaving this situation I was like mm. why on earth did I yeah. do that uh-oh. Anyway, yeah. so there's none of that. But right. there, I will say this. After all of this time away and Warp Records were expecting my big album because right. the first one, there was only a license, right? Right. So I'd gone off and five years later, I came back with my fucking record. <laughs> they might have given up on you. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and I didn't hear anything back from the label for like a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, uh. kind of like really upset, you know? And then when I finally did hear back from the label boss, he was like, I don't know. We're kind of expecting it to be more fucked up. Yeah. Feels a bit like straight or whatever. And I was like, but that's the whole point. Yeah. That's the whole point of this record. Right. I want it to be like a lot more straight. That's my intention. Yeah. Like I want this to be a successful record. I like, I, I crafted it to not be an underground record. I want it to be right. a pop record. Right. In my head, it kind of was. Oh, certainly. And, and 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 I think they just didn't really go for that. But, yeah. And they sort of put it out. But I'd had this grand scheme and it actually caused a big rift between me and this guy, Pablo Fiasco, like my mm-hmm. visual guy. We right. made a DVD, which never seen the light of day. Oh, no. I wanted to be a double release with the with the music and the live show versions oh, cool. of all the stuff. Oh, that'd be neat. Opening for Square Pusher in Tokyo and all these crazy connected footage. And I like, right. we made a whole movie that go, right. went with it. And I was like, it's going to be a double album. We're going to have the music and we have this thing. Right. But they just didn't want to go for the DVD. They didn't want to right. like. And I'd make promises kind of to the other guy that it was going to be this thing. Yeah. And that caused a lot of stress. Sure. And um, and they kind of made me feel like they just weren't really into it. Right. And that it wasn't going to work. But I had an amazing, a couple of things that I learned along the way. One of them I think was yeah. just pure luck. Yeah. Because I was living in Berlin. And Berlin happened to be the hot place to live. Right. So all the journalists wanted to talk about Berlin, and I was in Berlin, right? Right, right. So I was like, "Oh man, you're in Berlin." It's like, good, cool. 
Let's talk about Berlin. Yeah. yeah that's fine. Uh, and then my music kind of also got in there. Yeah. You know? And I wasn't living in the UK, so all of a sudden that made me a little bit more interesting to the UK journalists. Oh, absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. So like it's all classic of a sudden, journalism. Oh, yeah. And I was sort of yeah. like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you live in Berlin. What's up with that? What's up with the... You know, right. so I was interesting. I was... It gave me a way in, let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Hey, they all want a story. Every, yeah. You know, typical journalist. And we should journalist. find it fine. You know, you know yeah. yeah. But it, and I had one woman really believe in me, like on the, on the on, you know, who was working in my PR company. Mm-hmm. And she just really went, Lauren Zorick, that's her name. Yeah. And uh, she really single-handedly, like, put that shit on the map. And like it really went off. Right. It didn't like go ballistic, but right. it compared to what I think everyone expected it to yeah. do, it really kind of hit the zeitgeist in a weird way. It was yeah. like soul music, like, and then a year later, Amy Winehouse came out, you know? Right, right. And it was everywhere, Which that is, shit. You know? Like it was everywhere. Yeah. And, and like, and it just was the sound. Right. You know? You know, like, Mark's, I mean, you were just mentioning Mark Ronson earlier and that production where it's combining elements of soul and, and R&B with uh, DJing and electronics and sampling in a way is fascinating, yeah. you know? That's the thing. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, so that was, that was it. That was, that was a really big deal. And it, yeah. it's sort of, I could have almost, you see, in another universe... Had that shit been on a big label yeah. and they'd had believed in it, it probably would have been right. Could have been quite a, a big record. <laughs> it had the potential to be. Uh, but you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. But at the same yeah. time, I don't know if I if I uh, would have wanted that. Right. Like well, I've had chat with my wife about this a lot. Yeah. I, it's not just self-sabotage. I mean, the thing I was talking about earlier, talking right. shit about people could be a form of that self-sabotage sometimes thing. yeah it's kind of almost wanted to not yeah endear myself too much i don't know i almost wanted to fail the gig right. i was trying to you know i don't know there's a bit there's there's an element of that right but there's also this element of i sincerely don't want i never wanted to be a big star or anything it's well i mean you know Jesus, I mean? look at amy's life you know that wasn't healthy. It really wasn't healthy. You know? I, yeah, obviously, she was a very special case in a way. And sure. like, ready, I mean, yeah. surrounded herself with like yeah. bad <clears throat> people. <clears throat> and there's yeah, so yeah. many. No, I mean, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, there's so many. Obviously, man. Yeah. You know, we, unfortunately, we know far too many amazing people that just. Yeah, yeah, just can't can't get a grip. So that's I, I, yeah. I've always felt like I was super lucky in a way yeah. to be able to make a life. I bought this house, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. opened up for Prince, James Brown, Bjork, right. like Beck, like you know, <laughs> I've worked with Nigel Godridge, I've worked with like all these people. Right. Like I've achieved a lot of my life goals. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Totally, but right. softly in a way. Yeah. Sort of in the background and not and I and I kind of love that. You know what I mean? Well, because it's been just the right amount of fame. Yeah, it's just enough that yeah that I can sort of keep going with stuff. But whatever, it feels so vain to talk like that. But well, but you are talking about yourself. That's know, what we're here for. It's getting a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, yeah but that's yeah, yeah. I suppose it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. I I did have a meeting with Rick Rubin 
And mm-hmm. after I'd done Multiply, I'd put out, I got Jim together, and it was definitely a concerted effort. It was a weird mindset. Yeah. Possibly if I were to advise someone else doing this, I wouldn't advise this. Like, I tried to design that record with Mocky to just be a focused version of what we were doing on Multiply, but only the soul bits. And, right. And it was 2008, so it was a right. little bit slightly over the wave, and mm-hmm. it went well. And it probably had my biggest songs on it, but at the same time, and after that, we Ruben wanted to chat, right. maybe around that time. And I remember sort of sabotaging that meeting. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. So, if I, but, I, but also I remember at the time when Capital put their offer in for, for me to Warp Records. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a very substantial offer. And uh, just a, it's a funny, funny mixture of being on a very proud independent label Warp. Right. Who are great, but they had their limits. Yeah. Some of my mindset working with artists nowadays is like I try to look at I try really desperately not to be cynical. Sometimes people will say, Yeah, I think this thing could be really big on this label. In the back of my mind I'm like, I don't think it can. Right. <laughs> Even if they had the best intentions in the world, I actually don't think it could be big. Like what their their reach or the power yeah. of the label is or I think such. they can only get it to yeah. the lakes. They can't get it to the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> they can push it right. pretty big in their system, but are they really going to take it down the main pipe? Well, because it I costs mean, the machine, so much, right? I was just going to say, the machinery is expensive. You know, like someone yeah. said to me the other day, like um, it cost a million dollars to make one of these like really slick country singles become a hit, to even get in the pipeline to be it. You know, that's consider, what I'm saying. That's what you I'm know? saying. And the people, uh, listeners don't realize that, but it's still that way for very top tier things that are in everyone's face music. I know. It's a very expensive game. And I sort yeah. of started to see. That's the thing. I'm desperately yeah. trying to not allow that in <laughs> and make yeah. a good living so right. it's sort of is that now that's sort of the new conundrum having done yeah. the solo thing and really made money touring right like everyone i guess but right. uh, and at the time i was quite fortunate that i was just really doing solo stuff mm-hmm. i pretty much played solo until 2008 really right so that was what I'm saying. It was that window of time that bought this house. <laughs> That's when I good. Solo. You're fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I was basically DJing in a weird way. Right. You know, I was just playing on my own. And yeah. So I would always open up for James Brown like that. That's crazy. That's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. A nice moment. And it like, worked. yeah, there's that good footage that I still really like of, of playing with the Nigel Godridge and the Beck thing right. in the basement when we did it made a veil. Right. So oh, posted nice. recently because of the whole Maida Vale nonsense. It was really sad. I don't even know about that. They're closing Maida Vale down. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. Right. So it's like, what? That's like such an important thing. Yeah. A couple of things happened to me that I'm really proud yeah. of. John Peel played my songs like twice. A badge of honor. Yeah, major. You know? That was it. That's almost like retire, happy <laughs> style. And I, someone recorded it. I have a cassette somewhere. Actually, I don't have a do. Oh, wow. Of, of him, him on the radio. To, yeah, doing the announcement and everything. Oh, man. So that's nice. And uh, yeah, obviously, opening for Prince. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And yeah, <laughs> really nice. And open for Elton John. 
songs for a whole wow. tour. Wow. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. But not solo. That was with the band. But yeah, okay. for a whole tour, that was really yeah. kind of special. What kind of band did you put together after the solo shows? Had a couple of bands. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool, cool. Like outsider bands. Mm-hmm. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I never really like heavy hitting session dudes. It's like guys I knew in Berlin. Really. Right, right. And a little bit beyond. Yeah. Another band. Yeah, <laughs> and I just sort of yeah, yeah. tried to keep it fun, and then I went out again not so long ago after I did my self-titled album in 2013. I went out on my right. own again, right? And it was a really weird thing because I went out on my own again, and like I had like a show, which I guess today no one would question this, right? But in 2013, it was a different landscape. Even, yeah. Because I had like just my stuff behind a crazy constructed mirror table. Yeah. It was actually a sick table. Nice. All these angled pieces of, of mirror. Like, and it was a really bizarre, like spaceship kind of thing. Yeah. And a massive screen. I spent loads of money on getting the biggest projector. Oh, yeah. And taking it with us. We took the projector with us. Right. It's like a really potent one. Right. And, uh, and I had like custom software made to develop um the visuals and all that and Mm -hmm. it was live visuals interactive right with this music and so it was like a kind of a big itunes screensaver in a way but (laughs) you know but a bit more tasteful (laughs) yeah we've seen changes yeah Uh, yeah. (laughs) but nevertheless i went out and played like that and having done the band thing and having kind of established myself as the soul guy right right coming back out and doing that show yeah. It fell a bit flat. Really? And I feel my biggest audiences are in Belgium, Holland and all that. I yeah. think, th- and, and the cool thing about it was though, um, fell a bit flat until I brought out a drummer and a keyboard player. Right. Just added that to the configuration. And then just... And then everyone was like, oh yeah, now it's happening. Right. Before they were there, nothing was happening and I might as well have been doing nothing. Partly because I'd hid myself behind the tables right even though i was doing a lot i was doing right. a lot of the looping and making right. tracks still but no one could really see right so it's like, like all of a sudden this, space bar. yeah this magic <laughs> trick was too far away and i've learned a lot of things like that through my looping days yeah like you can't put too many effects on a on an instrument too soon because then people are like they don't feel like they're involved Right, it's right. Not blue co- the blue collar aspect of the working for the result is lost. Right, right. You go ooh, and he goes five harmonies come out, and it's like yeah, delays on it. It's like yeah. you didn't do anything. Yeah, you know, people people look for for a sort of authenticity a lot yeah. of times, and working for it. Know, that's why yeah, yeah. one of the best loopers of all time is Ed Sheeran. Yeah, yeah. He's the most blue collar. Yeah, like looper. He gets people into it. Yeah, because he's it's just crazy. he's simple. Yeah, yeah. He does a loop, you hear yeah. it. He doesn't. There's no shit on it. He yeah. just builds the track and really does it. Yeah, as a solid arrangement, and it's really straight to the point. It's better than his his studio music. Right, right. It's way better. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's why he has a career. It's exactly. Because of the life thing. Oh yeah. So anyway, but yeah, man. And then I just sort of met my wife, which is you know an amazing change in in tempo yeah very welcome and just sort of yeah because i think i was caught up in quite a you know 2008 and jim could have gone to the next level again one of these tantalizing things we almost broke france and right you know and there wasn't enough of a cash injection from warp and we just kind of missed it slightly right and then i just got sick of 
my management and you know I had the usual kind of a lot of shit just broke down right and thankfully I met Lindsay and we just I just kind of thought I don't want any of this and made right. Compass which pretty much bombed but it was an right. album I truly love right <laughs> you know what I mean because I just was like yeah. I realized I was getting sad because I'd made Jim as almost like a deliberate commercial move but I didn't mm. really love some of it Right. So my heart wasn't in it by the time I started to tour it fully, and I and I was getting like the clown mask. I was just going out and doing my shtick. Yeah. Going, yeah. wow, I've made a shit life for myself. This is this. It's hard. Yeah. Like, and I wasn't really milking it and getting loads of money or anything. So like, what the fuck? So then going yeah. back to the studio, and then Lindsay was like, "What do you really love?" And she was getting, she was asking the tricky questions about who I was as an artist and if I had anything to say. in, in a way, you know. Yeah. bringing out Compass and doing that I did that with Beck and Chris mm -hmm. Taylor and Grizzly Bear right. super cool experience I bet and uh, but yeah so that got me back into making yeah. my own music in a way and oh, now I'm sort of back there again in a way right right sort of wondering like do I have anything to say I've been doing a lot of <laughs> co-writing with people interesting been having more success with that recently yeah. I did a song with Hayley Steinfeld and it's had mm -hmm. 400 million streams Jesus. So, so like a really big song. That's amazing. Like, so yeah, I've, now I've got a little bit of my foot in the pop world. Right. And it's just behind the scenes. Interesting. Again. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know, the writers are really weirdly unsung. Yeah. Well, and definitely underpaid. Yeah. Crazily underpaid. Well, streams especially. It's frightening. Yeah. Seventeen percent, I think, of a stream revenue goes to the writers. Yeah. Jeez. They ate the master side that's eighty three percent. And it's really unfair. That anyway, seems crazy, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it seems like almost as if when streaming was set up, the majors had something to do with it. No, that couldn't <laughs> happen. Yeah. <totally laughs> right. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? It's battling yeah, yeah. this cynical mind. Yeah, yeah. Which is well, awful. This sort of the, it's almost as if if you face the business side mm -hmm. and look at it in a cold way, no one should do music. It's stupid. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? It's a losing game. You right. Can't Not win. a good investment. No. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. you join a band. It's a nightmare. Everyone loses money. No, you know, right. it just fails. Right. But you've got to try it because right. it's great as well. You know. That's like, that's the thing. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You stay no, in totally it because it's so amazing. But it's like... Um, but you also have to keep those thoughts at bay. It. Like if you're in here you working do. with an artist or you're oh, producing man. someone... And like you just mentioned earlier, like they're like, oh, you know, this is going to go big because it's label. You've got to keep them also at a point where they're staying positive and, and uh, not thinking, not dwelling on like, how are we going to get this uh, released or how, you know, how is it going to do? How is it going to be perceived? You know, you yourself are given the same example of like trying to please people a little more and then being unhappy with it yourself. So keeping on track and keeping those thoughts away, keeping those things away is healthy <laughs> it's very healthy it's very healthy yeah. when you were making all the records like in berlin even like did you had your own place at the mm -hmm. at the funk house and had two studios I had yeah. one at the funk house which was cool you know <laughs> i really was getting stoned too much and that's been a problem <laughs> for me in my whole life actually <laughs> just sort of like becoming almost like a collector and yeah. just sort of maintaining old gear Right. I mean, you know, I see a lot in here. <laughs> yeah, it all works right now, which is good. amazing. Nashville's but, a good place for repairs. It is, it is. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. There's people here. Yeah. And so <laughs> I've 
but I just did. I I just used to go in to the studio, and just sort of I'd get I get disturbed by some crackle on something and try to fix oh, it yeah. for hours. Update software. Yeah, and I just thought <laughs> that's my life candle burning down. Yeah, right. I spent a lot of my life doing that. Right. You know, and I just feel like major regrets because mm-hmm. of that. That's really not cool. And I and some part of me fantasizes about. We're talking about moving to LA, mm-hmm. and in the interim period when we're going to be living there and not moving out of here, right. I won't have any of this. No studio. No, I'll take my Apollo and I'll take maybe a couple of drum machines. Right. But um, that'd be it. Sometimes limitations are yeah. sparks. <laughs> I, I almost feel like yeah. it's got to be. I mean, I maybe look around this. I look around this room and there are. Well, I'll just say there's it's a number of keyboards and, and equipment and drums and things to play with and chimes on the wall, you know, but it's like, you know, you could easily uh, get in a little bit of a head spin about which one to go play next, you know, or, you know, what would it sound? I'll do four passes because I got to check out which keyboard is going to be best on. And if you don't have much of a choice or you're just using the virtual instrument you know you can just throw ideas down maybe virtual instruments (laughs) i thought i'd get that rise from you yeah no that's not going to take away the option anxiety is it let's be honest yeah that's true basically if you want to remove the option anxiety you've got to remove the computer entirely Mm -hmm. you need to go back to cassette you do do. yeah 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 you have to i've been using the nakamichi i saw that over there thanks to my interview with um, unknown mortal orchestra he Oh, oh yeah, he yeah. He does everything with that. Is Runs he, every single track through it. That's I've been to his basement. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh He's cool. In Portland, you know. Oh shit, oh, nice yeah. man. It's so fun. Oh, it's cool. like there's all these things, instruments, and yeah, stuff no, to play love, with. Love, love his attitude. He's running around barefoot down there playing guitar. Oh man, <laughs> he's, he's great. And yeah, I just he really inspired me. That's good. That's been a, a great new lease of life for me. Yeah. To just sort of realize that, you know, got to kind of go back to my roots in a way and just think, yeah. what do I like sonically? Right. What do I like? I like things to sound messy. And, yeah. But with sort of a lot of variation, like I want a, me- I want a mix of high and lo-fi that's very mm-hmm. specific, you know. Yeah. I can kind of almost hear it now because of my... Yeah. Of, evolution yeah and knowledge of the gear and like know what i don't want and uh yeah how do you see that stuff like when you're producing someone like alan recently how do you come to a place of combining and sonically what what's the template you know what i mean yeah no with him it was interesting because it's a combination of songwriting and production right like the Warriors song was a song we wrote here. Yeah. Um, you can kind of hear it. It was kind of electronic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a bit of a wild card track in a way. Yeah. It didn't fit the blueprint of the other stuff that he had in his demos. It was sort of a bit more of a, a shot. Yeah. For the, you know, it, it, it was more going for the jugular a little bit right like in a pop sense right right almost wearing an outfit that's a little outlandish and going can i pull that off <laughs> one of those that's days. what you need yeah yeah sometimes it was it, to be honest it wasn't a, like a like uh it wasn't something that was set up to 
be that way. It wasn't like we got in that morning, we're like, let's make the song. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't yeah. any of that. It just sort yeah, of did yeah. evolve really naturally. Right, right. I just sort of put a drum down and we started writing on it. And yeah. So it just came out like that. And then we, you know, it's one of those moments yeah. where you're like, can we, can, can we go that, can we be that blatant? And it's sort of like, and it's sort of yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I think we can. You know, so right. it's really, I love those moments. I love those moments with artists where you are on the border. Right. Because the safety, the comfort zone stuff is great. Yeah. You're working with a great balladeer. It's almost like Miles, remember back in the day, he'd say right. he doesn't want to do ballads anymore because they're too comfortable. Right, right. And of course, it's such a good thing to hear Miles play a ballad. It's such a joy. <laughs> Isn't it? And yeah. it's sort of like one of life's true pleasures is yeah. to hear him do that. But right. then, because he knew that it was like, kind of like opium in a way. Yeah. A, a given. Right. You're just like, what else though? What else? Yeah. So it's nice Certainly. to be on that fringe with people. That's exciting yeah. for me. It's great, yeah. isn't it? When you feel like Always. we're like riding something that feels a bit dirty almost. Right. But that's <laughs> like, cool. Maybe we shouldn't be doing yeah. this. You know? that's, yeah. That's nice. I, I really love that. Yeah. So right, some of the songs had that. Yeah. And some of the songs were just me trying to capture the spirit of his band, you know? Right. And so we worked at Sound Emporium a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a place I truly love. Yeah. Just down the road. Cool, and huh? I remember every day going to work, as it were, yeah. just feeling really excited every single day. Just yeah. getting in my car and just wanted to be there straight away. Right. I just wanted to try. I brought like a kind of a, my, my way of injecting something odd was I'd bring down the Nagra, like a, an SEM, uh, the, the Biphase, Right. the SB1200. I just started bringing more and more gear to the studio. I brought right. more and more of this stuff. I bought right. the Moog. I bought like my Korg CR4, the short right. Everett box, and then uh, like uh, just more and more pieces of gear down there. kind of funny. And I just would inject it into the signal path. Right. And sort of like pepper it in. Yeah. I tried to keep the band playing live on the floor with no headphones. That oh, was really? Like, so that all the tracks that were cut were like live with Alan singing too. Wow. Just because I thought, nah, it's Nashville, man. You know? Yeah. It's going to be the best, isn't it? If these guys <laughs> play all the time, they're a great band. Right. So like it was it was cool to sort of track most of it that way. Right. And then there were days when it, Alan actually wasn't there. He had to go for a couple of days. So I constructed tracks with the band mm-hmm. that I thought were kind of like remixes of some song ideas. It was a really odd process. Really yeah. Cool. yeah. And then we came back and took all that raw material that we'd kind of tracked. We tracked a lot. I think like 18 songs in eight in 10 days or something. You yeah. know, it's quite fast. Yeah. Fast enough that a lot of it was, um, yeah, it, it was, it was well done, but it was, um, rough around the edges yeah a bit. yeah so we came in here and, and start chipping away at vocals really yeah doing a lot of vocal overdubs and and rearrangements and and re-singing leads and yeah. my first real production gig paid really you feel like Very. you're going to start taking on more production gigs it depends in the future yeah it's just i don't know if i'm cut out for <laughs> some of the psychological aspects of it right I mean, most of the cases you're talking about, you're also co-writing and, and producing. I like that more. Yeah. Because, and I understand when I work with Beck. Yeah. He really wanted to write all the stuff with me and didn't particularly want to take songs I'd written and produce them. Right. And at the time, I didn't really understand that. Right. Now, I suppose I do. Yeah. That's interesting, right? Yeah. 
but I would give him some investment or, or a way. Yeah, of, you just feel like you, know, you can kind of relate. It. Not. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I just feel like you. Yeah, you've grown it together. So right. there's this, this obvious connection to the timeline of it, and right, and and that's nice, isn't it? It's like growing a plant. Right, it's different. <laughs> Rather than just tending to a fully grown plant or whatever, or trying to exactly pro- get a prize zucchini out of it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. interesting going forward. I, I, I'm, I'm, my wife will always ask me like, "What do I want my life to look like?" And I'm, I would say like, I just want varied days. Awesome. Well, yeah. I think we had a good interview. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. let's do I, the other thing. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. Lying with you and I want to cry. Baby, won't you dry your eyes? Don't want to keep thinking of all we could have been. I'm always afraid of you and what I put you through